Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR 161AE57, Marxism and Communism, from the Easy Chair, excellent colloquies on various subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair number 161, January 15, 1988. This evening, Otto Scott and I are going to discuss Marxism, but perhaps I should say more broadly, we are going to discuss communism. Marxism is simply one modern form of communism, an idea which over the centuries has often appealed to people. It has a very long and ugly history. As a matter of fact, the first major uh, manifestation of communism uh, goes back to the early years of the 5th century A.D. in Persia. Nowadays, very few people are aware of the fact that Persia was in antiquity and into the Christian era, one of the great powers of the world. We have artificially selected Greece as the cradle of civilization and of a great many things when Greece really was by no means as important as our history books indicate. The reason why Greece was selected and not Persia, for example, or Egypt, or any number of other countries, was because people saw in Greece elements of the naturalistic, materialistic thinking, which is so important to modern man, and because these other cultures, far greater than Greece, still had beliefs in the supernatural, or in gods of some sort, they have been relegated to uh, the nether world of history. Now, Persia had a great civilization in the era before Christ, and a very advanced one. However, in the fifth century of this era, communist thinking began to develop in Persia, the Mazdakite movement. The Mazdakite movement believed in the total communization of a culture. They believed in the communism of property, the communism of money, and the communism of women. When they gained power, the Mazdakites instituted this radical communism. <laughs> When finally that regime was overthrown a couple of, two, three generations later, in fact, by Hosros Anorshavan, a member of the royal house who had survived in hiding, the country had been so gutted of its character that in not too many years, a generation or two or more, when the Turks began to move westward, Persia was unable to offer resistance, and it fell. 
This was the first great manifestation of communism in history. Many, many such communistic efforts have been made over the centuries. However, the second great manifestation has been in our time, Marxism. The Soviet Union and its satellite states and now Red China. So, communism has a major role in world history, a very ugly role, devastating, uh, totally evil in its every manifestation, and yet with a lingering popularity. In fact, sometimes a phenomenal popularity with people. At any rate, communism is our subject tonight. Otto, would you like to make some general remarks now? Well, communism today has practically dropped out of the American vocabulary. It's a very strange phenomenon. We still have a Communist Party of the USA, and we still have uh, active Communist Party members. We still have a very large group of people who accept and convey communist ideas. We keep using the term Marxism because it seems to be now more acceptable for a professor or a scholar or some other individual to say, I am a Marxist. He doesn't say, I am a communist. If you call somebody a communist and he's not actually a member of the Communist Party, he can sue you for slander. And the Communist Party of the United States is a very, in a very unusual position. The courts have ruled that it doesn't have to publish or even disclose to the government its members, lest they be harassed by other people. Now, this is not true of any church, and it's not true of any political organization, it's not true of any charity, it's not true of any fraternal order, it's not true of any trade union, it's not true of anybody else, only the Communist Party USA. So, since the demise of Senator McCarthy, it's been considered uh, a violation of good manners, decency, patriotism, tolerance, virtue, you name it to even bring up the subject of communism, or communists in the American government, or communists in the university, or communists in the church. And yet, I think the communists of the United States are more influential today than they have ever been. Yes, I think it's interesting, too, how communism very early infiltrated the academic community. A good many years ago, a professor, a very brilliant if unstable man, uh, told me on one occasion why it was that professors found uh, the Soviet Union so appealing. He said it was because after the revolution, the Soviet Union did something that immediately gained a great deal of interest on the part of 
professors throughout Europe and the Americas. Even though the ruble was not worth much, and if you had a large number of rubles, there was nothing you could buy with it. What they did immediately was to put the pay scale of professors at a rate that made them markedly better paid than professors in Europe, in Britain, in the United States, in Latin America. Immediately, this was publicized throughout the world in the academic community. And the academicians decided that whatever uh, things might be wrong with communism, there was great hope for it because they appreciated the men who should be appreciated, namely the professors. And because of that, there was a belief that anyone who was an intellectual should be pro-communist, pro-Soviet, because the Soviet Union appreciated the men who made civilization possible, or so they believed. Now this fact was not publicized. I did not even know of it until this professor told me. And he'd had a couple of drinks at least when he told me this. But it made sense immediately because it explained why the Academy everywhere from the very beginning, in spite of all the monstrous horrors of the early Bolsheviks and of Stalin and now Stalin's successors, has been ready to be soft on the Soviet Union. Well, I think that's one good explanation. I think there are some others. The one American scholar talked about the rise of authoritarian socialism in the 1870s, 1880s, both in Britain and in here, and I imagine on the continent as well. And he drew particular reference to Edward Bellamy's book, Looking Backward. Now, it's very interesting. If you look at Looking Backward today, it's uh, not, it doesn't seem the same as it did when it was written. It was a great bestseller. Yes. And it was written, I think, in 1887, or published in 1887, and it was about the ideal world of the year 2000, in which no Congress would be necessary, no laws would be necessary, no police would be necessary, elections were no longer necessary. The trusts, or the monopolies, of 1887 had continued to enlarge until there was just one great monopoly. So everything was owned in common, you might say. And everybody had become totally uh, harmonious. There were no disagreements. There was Everything that was done was voluntary and everything was reasonable. <coughs> now, <coughs> this is fresh in my mind because I read only a few days ago a review of the book, updated, in the, of all places, the New York Times book review, which you don't generally find very many diamonds in, but nevertheless uh, did this time. And the reviewer went on to say that Edward Bellamy was a premature totalitarian. 
He wanted a world in which everything was ordered into conformity. There was no more challenge, there was no more sin, there was no more arguments. Everybody agreed with each other and so forth and so on. He didn't foresee any of the technological changes that have actually come along, radio and television and the automobile and so forth, which has transformed the living standards of the world. He was only devoted to the political structure. And in this sense, he was an authoritarian socialist, and he expressed the ideals and the dreams of socialists of 1887 and the expectations of these people that a very, uh, you might say, argumentative and slightly irrational world would suddenly become perfect by people behaving rationally. Now, this, of course, is an idiotic assumption, but it was his and it was very fashionable. It was picked up and it was carried through the decades. There, that book sold, is still in print, I believe. Yes, I uh, know that among some students in the 1930s when I was at Berkeley, it was still having a considerable influence. All right, Mr. Roosevelt liked it. It had an effect on his thinking. It had an effect on Colonel House. It had an effect on Lenin and company. It had an effect around the world. And it still has the effect, even though, and the reviewer in the Times was very interesting. He said, Edward Bellamy's looking backward. Prove to us who know the future that it didn't work. <laughs> and well, it didn't work. Well, the interesting thing is, that his vision was not unlike that of others early in the century. Notably, for example, Horace Mann. Horace Mann expected the same utopia. He felt that in a century, writing roughly around 1830, I believe, say 1930 or thereabouts, all crime would disappear, prisons would disappear, economic problems would disappear. All problems would be solved by one simple gimmick, the public school. Universal education. Universal education. Universal education. Yes. That, that was going to take care of everything. Yes. And I remember, and it wasn't very long ago, that people were still saying, well, it's an educational problem. They're yes. saying that about AIDS right now. <laughs> it's an educational problem. All we have to do is to use the proper precautions. Yes, the same stupid dream. Well, uh, of course, this was anti-Christianity because they refused to reckon with the fact of sin. And that's why one of the things which most impressed me on our trip to Britain was the report of a minister that uh, when Mrs. Thatcher walked into his church one Sunday, she was visiting with friends in the area, he was preaching a doctrinal sermon on original sin, on the depravity of man. And when it was over, she came up to him and uh, said, you know, if we could get all the people of Britain to understand the meaning of original sin. A great many of our political problems would either fall into place or be resolved. Because she recognized immediately 
as a Christian and as a sound political figure that it was the refusal to confront the fact of sin and of man's depravity that leads to so much of the foolish politics of our day. Well, that that's interesting. But the going back to this idea of the perfect world, even if it kills you, <laughs> yes. uh, went on. Now, there was something else involved. Mr. Bellamy's book had an awful lot of complaints in it about ordinary people, about the selfishness of ordinary people, what Woodrow Wilson used to call selfish interests. Woodrow Wilson <clears throat> felt that any man who was out to better himself was involved in a selfish effort. He accepted himself from that description. I mean, he could be ambitious, but that was mm -hmm. something else. Anyone else who was ambitious was somebody to be looked at with suspicion. People should not try to improve themselves in the material sense. Now, the whole question of the utopian really breaks down to a jealousy of the other man and a refusal to let the other man have his own ideas and to let the other man do what he thinks is best for himself and an insistence that the other fellow should shut up and listen to me and I will tell you what to do and then everything will be perfect. Yes. Uh, of course, as Christians, we must believe that we are the source of sin. I, even I, have sinned and done that which is evil in thy sight, David tells us. And the interesting thing about the communists of whatever stripe is that they are good people. They are the elite. But it is other people, particular groups, and Christians especially, who are responsible for all kinds of sin. Yes. I recall once sitting up for hours because he was so determined to convert me with someone who had a mixture of uh, Marxist ideas and especially Bellamy's. To him, Bellamy was the great American prophet. Mm -hmm. And the uh, ugly fact about that young man, a very brilliant, very talented young man, overflowing with talent, was that he never was able to accomplish anything because his life was one of bitterness. Now, his parents doted on him. They saw his abilities rather than his character. So he was subsidized during the Depression in a way very few people were. And yet, he had nothing but hostility and contempt for them. The more they did for him, the more he insisted they were just trying to buy him with money. Hmm. And yet he demanded it. Yes, what else could you buy him with? Yes. <laughs> Good point. Uh, everyone around him had a fault. If you were doing well at the university and you were uh, some kind of uh, scoundrel uh, buttering up the establishment and uh, if he did well it was his talent mm -hmm. 
so that uh, the whole world was perpetually damned in his sight except his kind. All right. Now, we go back to Paul Hollander and the Political Pilgrims. It's a very good book, talking about all the intellectuals, the artists, and so forth. The only omission he made in that book, and it was a significant omission, <clears throat> was that he didn't include the businessmen. There were, uh, as many businessmen made the trip mm-hmm. to Mecca, to, to, to the Kremlin, as there were artists or poets or professors. And the businessmen went for the same reason, because they wanted to advance themselves in the world. They wanted to make a profit out of dealing with the Soviets. The artists and the professors wanted to be elevated in their profession and get all the support they could. And all of them, almost without exception, I would say, were the sort of people who didn't give a damn about anyone but themselves. Mm -hmm. Because to walk into a prison... I remember talking to a psychologist once who used to go to a prison. He was at a job where he interviewed the prisoners, classified them, and graded them, and so forth. And I said, well, does it pay well? He said, no, not particularly. Uh, but he sa- I said, are you writing a book, or, or, or are you collecting information for some purpose or another? No, no, not particularly. But he liked the job. I said, why? Well, he said, it makes me feel so good when I can leave. Mm-hmm. And that was very interesting. And I think these people who went to the Soviet had much the same feeling because they were superior. They had the passport that protected them. And they were dealing with the upper level or the upper strata of the commissars. And they also came back filled with contempt for their own culture, civilization, and religion. They were elitists. Yes. And the elitists figures, if I can control society or be allied with those who are controlling the world, I don't care what happens to those under me. Now, that is their attitude in one way or another. All right, if you you transfer this into why do the young college students in the social sciences, putting aside the effect of their professors, really look at somebody like Mao Zedong and Che Guevara and Castro and Danny Ortega and the others because they represent, those figures represent to these students success, the ultimate power, the ultimate success, fame and everything that goes with it. Power, real in the real sense. So Marxism today, communism today is no longer is no longer the socialistic sort of utopian theory that it was in Bellamy's day. Today, it's considered a blueprint for advancement, for power over others. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the lure, and that's a big lure. And it also means that they know. They know about the gulag. <coughs> they know about the massacres. <coughs> they don't care. Mm-hmm. This is the real allure of evil. Yes. Uh, elitism is precisely that habit of separating yourself from other people and being indifferent mm-hmm. to their status. When men who are in the professions or were wealthy were Christian and they went to church with people from all walks of life, 
and had uh, some connection, some relationship with them, or felt an obligation towards them, they were not indifferent. You couldn't be. Uh, no, you couldn't be. Religiously, you had a responsibility. But the minute Christianity began to recede from the world of these people, then they separated themselves. Then they could be elitists, and they could regard these people as uh, persons to be used. Part of the herd. Part of the herd, yes. Well, let's go on to the whole business. In when Lenin got his 50 million gold marks from the, from the Germans, according to Joel Carmichael's biography of Tolstoy, the first thing that Lenin and Tolstoy did with that money was to buy 47 newspapers. First. Mm -hmm. And after that, they bought guns <coughs> and uniforms and all the rest and, and subsidized the army that they subsidized because there was only 3,500 to 4,000 Bolsheviks in all Russia, not enough to overthrow even a palace. And the people at the top were the easiest to buy because they were the most de-Christianized. So it was easier to buy the men with the newspapers and the newspaper men than it was the peasants. Oh, sure. You had to convince the peasants. Yes. But you could buy the journalists. Well, from that time onward, Adam Ulam, the specialist, as you know, in the Soviet Union, yes. said that if forced by any combination of circumstances, the Soviet Union and its leaders would give up anything, territory, position, argument, whatever, but never their propaganda, mm -hmm. because they believe that they will conquer the world through propaganda. Now, this is almost like the devil and his false gospels, yes. because this is the way to change the world, through men's minds. I mean, the guns are there, and they're moving, and they have the, they use the power once they get the power. But before they get the power, they use propaganda. Now, if you look at communist propaganda, it's changed from what it was when McCarthy was talking about it. McCarthy was talking, Senator McCarthy was talking about spies, he was talking about double agents, he was talking about people in official positions who were false to their trust. And he was right. There were spies, there were double agents, there were positions who were people who were false to their trust. McCarthy was brought down by the argument that he was accusing innocent people, but they have not produced any people who were innocent. Nevertheless, the press turned on McCarthy, destroyed McCarthy, and when McCarthy was destroyed, every politician in the country got the lesson, and that is anti-communism will lead to your destruction. And from that day to this, Communism has ceased to be an issue in the public dialogue of the United States. But now we have the new kind of communist tactic, which changed with the takeover of Czechoslovakia. And I, I can say this because I've recently been looking into it. Czechoslovakia, a highly, most highly industrialized country in Central Europe, 
probably more concentrated than Germany, with less peasants. It had the great Skoda munitions works and all the rest. And they thought after World War II that they could set up a democracy, continue a democracy, once free of the Nazis, by allowing the communists into their government. So they had a coalition government. And the communists infiltrated the parliament and infiltrated the offices of the Czechoslovakian government until they were finally able to take it over totally. And from that day onward, the communist tactic has been to use parliamentary means, which formerly they said was ridiculous and foolish and so forth. And they are using, they, they, they insinuate themselves into the parliaments of the country they're trying to take over, notably Italy, Mexico, the Latin American countries, and the United States. Yes. We have communists now sitting in Congress. Yes, and the power of the idea is enormous because it is propagated from a variety of sources. You mentioned propaganda. Yes. Lynn T. White, an historian, said that one of the keys to Mussolini's success was state control of education. Mm -hmm. Then we have to add to that because, uh, well, to back up a moment, state control of education was early seen as the key to power by Horace Mann. You mentioned and his associates in your book. Yes. They saw it as an engine to sway the people, according to James Carter. The means whereby they, the humanists, could take over the United States and control it and de-Christianize it. Otto, a few minutes ago you mentioned propaganda. And I started out by citing the fact of state control of education, which Mussolini felt was very important. There are reasons for believing that the kind of thing we have had in fascism and communism would never have worked in the last century because now you have state control of education everywhere plus the radio and television as well as the press. And movies. And movies. And the Soviet Union promoted uh, radio and television among the people long before they had some of the most simple amenities of life. To this day they don't have uh, toilet paper without standing in line by the hour to get some. And uh, it's pretty hard to get, but you do have television mm -hmm. because it's a means of propagandizing people. So they use television, the movies, the press, and radio very, very heavily in the Marxist countries. Well, what about here? I understand oh, that a high school education today is mostly watching films. Mm -hmm. And we know that uh, our young people uh, accept films and television as realistic. Yes, uh, Dr. W. David Gamble uh, has written uh, this about the uh, NEA, 
the National Education Association. And uh, it's in an article uh, about the NEA in the People's Daily World, the U.S. Communist Party's paper. And the article was the perfect seven positions taken by the NEA. Support for affirmative action. Opposition to nuclear weapons. Support for the ratification of SALT II. Opposition to apartheid. Opposition to U.S. aid to the Contras. Condemnation of Lyndon LaRouche. An amusing one. And a call for reordering budget priorities especially the military budget, in order to meet the people's needs. Well, that's the program of the Communist Party, and that's also the program of the Democratic Party. And of the NEA, and of a great many organizations in this country. The Wall Street Journal today had a long story on the left-hand column of the front page regarding the military and the Democratic candidates in which they were asked recently, en masse, under what circumstances they would recommend the United States use of force. And none of them were able to answer that. They all took refuge in flights of rhetoric about peace, about disarmament, about negotiations, about last resorts, and so forth. None of them are in favor of the United States using force at all. Yes. So you have a thorough disintegration of the mind across the board in the United States. And a good deal of it, I would say, goes back to Horace Mann. The only counter-trend you have is the Christian school movement, and you can understand why there is such a hostility to it. I wonder if the Christian school movement includes a study of communism in its courses. A great many do. Mm -hmm. A great many. Because I think the average journalist in the United States wouldn't recognize a communist if one shot him dead. <laughs> Which may happen. Which may happen. Solzhenitsyn said, you know, when he came here, you are where we were in 1905. If you want to know your future, look at our past. Mm -hmm. And he said, the Americans will not know what has happened to them until they're told to put their hands behind their back and start walking. Mm -hmm. Now, when I said before we have communists in Congress, I meant it. We do. Yes. And the figure varies according to the specialists that I talk to, but 35 is the minimum. Mm -hmm. Now, and it goes as high as 75. Now, here we have the focus, we might have a distillation of a, of a revolutionary group seated in our parliament, which, unlike the revolutionary group of France in the 1780s, has now got access to enormous power outside the country which will support it in every way, and very influential power inside the country which is supporting these people in every way. The Peace in Nicaragua, not a word about the Soviets in Nicaragua. Not a word, as, as there was not a word about the Soviets in Vietnam, or the Soviets in Cuba, or the Soviets in the Philippines. And they, the communist propaganda here 
is reflected in the general media, not just the people's daily world. I would add this, Otto. When I look back at the university and the Marxists I knew then, uh, the fact that came through loud and clear to me was that these men, some of whom were very active in Communist Party matters, knew less than I did about Marxism and about the writings of Karl Marx. The uh, party in those days, maybe they still do, required of most members, say a longshoreman, and I'm thinking very specifically of someone here, who decides that he believes in communism and wants to join the party. He has to sit down and read volumes of Marx and pass written and oral examinations of them. This is the way it was and probably still is. So that he wound up very knowledgeable about Marxism. But if you were somebody important, like a professor, you didn't have to do that. Your position got you in. And what those people represented was a kind of pragmatism. They liked power. They gravitated to power. They were like weather vanes. They reflected the shift of opinion more rapidly than anyone else because they were interested in power, in being in favor. Now, I think in the business world and in the uh, world of politics, one would be hard put to find a doctrinaire, an intellectually knowledgeable Marxist. Yeah. But they're there by the carload as far as being uh, pragmatists who are going to go along with whoever is in power, in control, or whoever is setting the temper. Well, what we're really talking about here is second-raters who want first-rate positions. Right. Now, second-raters are easily manipulated because they can be manipulated by their emotions and their passions and their desires. Uh, I wouldn't say that the Black Caucus, for instance, is, is uh, educated in terms of Marxism. No. But the Black Caucus serves Marxist purposes. Yes. Because for 70 years, well, 60 years, the communists were trying to organize the black people of the United States. In 1928, for instance, they had a proposition for a black nation. They thought all the blacks should have a certain territory mm -hmm. in the South like the Armenians have a territory in the Soviet or the Georgians or the Ukrainians mm -hmm. and so forth. They were putting a Soviet template over the American population and thinking in terms of various homelands here. Yes. Well, that didn't get them anywhere. What actually moved it forward was the civil rights program. The civil rights program, which we might call the black rights program, and I'm not against black rights. I think that they deserve them and should have had them. But nevertheless, that program <clears throat> set up a system of block racial voting in the South, block voting, group voting, because they eliminated the educational test and they eliminated all the qualifications which had formerly narrowed down to those who could vote in the South. Today, 
you vote in the South no matter what. There's practically no examination, no qualifications, no check. Mm -hmm. Now, we do have certain barriers against felons and so forth and so on, but I don't believe those are applied anymore in the South. I don't believe the South is allowed to apply them. So what we have is a phenomenon of block, black voting, where in Philadelphia and Chicago, for instance, the black mayors are elected with 95% of the black vote. And we have people like Justice Bork or Judge Bork destroyed by the mere accusation of racism, which had no foundation but was sufficient to turn all the black people in the United States against him. Now, nothing more divisive could ever have been created. And the Black Caucus, imagine, we have a group of men inside our Congress who call, identify themselves by race at a time when to even mention the existence of a white race is to label yourself a racist. So there has, our thinking has been fragmented. Yes. And this, of course, is the result of years of effort years of propaganda which have taken very good soil you might say very good seed so when i talk or i'm talking here or when i look at communists in congress communists in the staffs of congress communists in the judiciary communists in governmental agencies and i see the shift in voting into racial and ethnic blocks where the very word American is no longer accepted and people are Italian-American or Irish-Americans. I said to one of these fellows, when were you last in Ireland? Oh, he said, I've never been there. But then I said, you're not Irish. Mm-hmm. There's no way you can be Irish without being in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're at the stage where Spain was in, say, 1932. We're, we're at a very late stage in the communization of the country. Well, uh, the, one of the things that uh, I often think about is Eugen Rosenstock Husey's statement in his book, The Christian Future. He spoke of John Dewey's thinking as the Chinification of the United States. Now, in old China, there was no concept of truth. There was only that which was uh, fitting for the moment, Mm. which pragmatically worked. Mm. The Yang and Yin philosophy Mm. uh, held that uh, at different times, different things are fitting. Mm-hmm. So you can change your direction totally, or your idea totally. Mm-hmm. You can be exactly the opposite uh, one year from what you were the last, because now this works better. Well, that is very deeply embedded in the United States because of our progressive education. Back in the early 60s, when I was with the uh, Volcker uh, Fund, the president, H.L. Luno, as a corporate head, had a great many visitors who were prominent corporate heads across the United States. 
And I saw how pragmatic they were in their outlook in some of the sessions where I was. And after one session, when the men left, uh, when we were having some refreshments together, Hal Luno said that he had confronted these men with the direction their own work was taking them. Mm -hmm. They were responsible for making the Soviet Union work. They were selling things mm -hmm. to the Soviet Union and so on. Right. And he said, are you not afraid that in not too many years they could take us over? Mm -hmm. Then where would you be? Mm -hmm. And their response was, doesn't bother us in the slightest. They will need us. Oh, and we will be heading up the works. Factories and so forth. Yes. yes. I heard that too. Now, they were purely Yang and Yin men. Mm -hmm. They were uh, products of John Dewey. For them, there was no truth, and they would get annoyed with Hal Luno when he tried to talk about right and wrong. Well, here we have a, a population, I've said this before, highly skilled, most highly skilled, I guess, the world's ever produced, but a population that doesn't like to think, and doesn't like to add things up, and doesn't like to be reminded of the score. Mm -hmm. uh, men who work hard all week and watch football games all weekend, and once you take the conversation away from the job, away from the corporation, away from how the car runs, they're annoyed mm -hmm. because this is not fun. They don't want to add anything up because they don't believe that there is a score to anything. Yes. But look at where we are in terms of the revolution, Rush. The revolution we now know in modern times Begin, is really masterminded from the parliament. Once the revolution gets control of the parliament, it has control of the country. Mm -hmm. Now, in the case of the French and the German and the Russian and other revolutions, they had a weak executive which they overcame. Well, let us assume, and of course we have a weak executive now, and we have an increasingly radical Congress. A Congress which refuses to recognize constitutional limits is basically a radical group. Now, each election makes Congress more radical. And even if we elect a strong president the next time, a very radical Congress will drive a strong president out of his authority. Mm -hmm. So this is where we are. Yes. In, in Spain, they drove the king out, then they drove the dictator out, Primo de Rivera, and then they went increasingly left until they decided what to take over. Well, they took over the church. They took over the lands of the Catholic Church in Spain, and then they began to murder the priests and the nuns, and that's what started the Civil War. Right now, at the, in December 23rd, that famous omnibus bill where Congress threw in everything in the dead of the night that they wanted to have done, and then gave Mr. Reagan a confrontation. You either sign this, or else the government will close down and we'll have a constitutional crisis. And he caved in. Well, one of the bills that they slipped in, H.R. 2942, by Congressman Pickle and Schultz, yes. forbids religious and charitable organizations from even commenting 
on any issue of the day. Mm-hmm. You cannot even recommend that people go out to vote mm-hmm. because that's considered lobbying. Mm-hmm. And that took effect December 31st, 1987, the last day of last year. Mm-hmm. Now, we've moved a long way. We've moved an awfully long way. Yes. Without the word communist being used in ordinary conversation in the country. Yes. Well, you uh, know, as I do, uh, California State Senator Bill Richardson. Yes. And Bill once told me a few years back that uh, contrary to popular opinion, most of the men who are in state uh, legislatures and on the federal level in Congress are of a high level of intelligence. But because of the kind of uh, training and faith they have, they cannot think 90 days ahead. He said they automatically turn you off if you talk about the effect of something 90 days ahead. And he said, there are very few of the voters out there who can think of consequences more than 90 days ahead. In other words, this is a part of the education of our times. No sense of causality. No sense of the future as having a direct relationship to the past and the present. A logical cause. How many people ask where the deficit came from? Yes. It's as someone told me uh, one of my travels, they were trying to explain some very simple fact that uh, given certain things, certain things were going to follow. Didn't they understand that? They explained it very carefully, saying this is the way things are, and this is what's going to happen. And when they were all through, the person responded, well, that's a matter of opinion. No, everything is a matter of opinion. Yes, no causality in the world. Yeah. Well, when there's no causality, how can any man govern his future or govern the world? This is why one of the most interesting things in the history of Marxism is that Karl Marx was a total uh, unbeliever in everything, in everything. A nihilist. And yet, the man he turned against most savagely uh, was Max Stirner, who wrote The Ego and His Own. Max Stirner was a logical anarchist. And Max Stirner believed that there was nothing that you could believe in. He railed against the uh, atheists of his day because he said they were all closet Christians, because they were still morally practicing Christianity. He said, which of these uh, people who boast of their atheism will sleep with their daughter or sister or mother? And he said, they're all closet Christians. Well, Marx wrote two volumes against him, the most passionate, intense writing he did, because his point was, in effect, never this baldly stated. If we throw everything overboard then nothing can work because nobody will believe anything. And we've got to have the people believe in communism. So we cannot be 
total uh, cynics. Now, this is why books were written against existentialism by Marxists. They were in agreement with the fundamental premises of existentialism. It's total belief in only the moment. Well, but pragmatically, they had to oppose it and did. Well, we know that in the Soviet Union, as in Hitler's Germany, for reasons of state, every life should be dedicated to the greater good, and the state will determine what that good is. Now, we've reached the point, we've reached the point where the Communist Party, for the first time practically ever, has decided not to run any candidates for federal office. They are backing Jesse Jackson. But they will be satisfied with any Democratic candidate out of the seven that are on the landscape now. Mm -hmm. And they have so said and so stated. Mm -hmm. And if you put their platform together with the Democratic platform, you can do the same as you did with the NEA. Mm -hmm. You'll find that it's parallel. The communists don't have to put up their own candidate anymore because they are the intellectual mentors of the Democratic Party. And it's amazing, absolutely astonishing. You know, it's not new. Earl Browder had an office in the White House when Roosevelt was president. You remember that. Mm -hmm. But this has now reached a state where the control is virtually open and official. When people do not believe in God, in Christ, they're going to be rudderless. And any strong wind that blows is going to carry them. And that's our problem today. Well, and no education, and this is where conservative groups are very, very foolish, because they think presenting the facts is going to save the country. But as long as people do not have a faith, they're going to be governed by the prevailing wind, the prevailing current of the times. Well, the conservatives aren't presenting the facts. They will not get up and present the facts. They, they will listen to a treasonous speech without saying a word. They talk to themselves. They don't talk to anybody else. No, and they are at heart too often humanists. So they're closer to the liberals and to the communists than they are to the Christians. Well, they're not defending Christianity. That's, no, that's for sure. That's for sure. You know that this year is supposed to be the thousand-year anniversary of Christianity in Russia. Mm -hmm. Now, look at the situation. Not a single, not a single church, not a single Christian group in the West is talking about the situation and condition of Christianity in Russia today, a thousand years after its inception. Yes. And we know that it's a, 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 an estimated 60%. The Soviet government today thinks that 60% of its population is, is Christian. 60%. They have no voice. They have no rights. Mm -hmm. It's a felony to teach the faith to anyone below the age of 18. The, church, the clergy is KGB. It's a fraudulent clergy. And here the West sits. Yes. And we have a clergy here that is practically compliant with the same sort of development.
Look at all the all the people who are taking in false refugees. Yes, and if you mention to those who profess to be Bible believing the necessity of facing up to the growing persecution of Christianity here, most of them will get nervous. Well, that's what I referred to. Now, in effect, Congress has thrown down the gauntlet. We know that this restriction, this heightened uh, restrictions against political expression on the part of the religious people in the United States will not be applied against Jesse Jackson, who will continue to campaign inside black churches and collect money at the end of every speech. Mm -hmm. Nobody is going to do say a word about that. Mm -hmm. But the religious right is on the target. And yet the religious right is the only actual anti-revolutionary force in the country. Yes. And this measure by Congressman Pickle from LBJ's district, old district yes. is intended to silence yes. that segment of the population. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. Very deliberately. Well, we're living in very, very difficult times, and most people are not even aware of the basic problems. Well, this has always been true. Uh, here we have a new form of keeping people uninformed, uh, deafening them by noise, mm -hmm. by extraneous uh, noise that doesn't mean anything, by scandals real and invented by entertainments of various sorts. Politics, which is really the government, is covered as though it's a form of entertainment, a race. Who's ahead, who's behind, who, who, got, who got in the poll today. The foreign policy of the United States is now considered what Reagan is trying to do, not what the president is trying to do, not the official policy, but the, a policy attached to an individual which means that you don't have to go along with it if you don't like the man. Mm -hmm. The semantic tricks, the echo chamber, the diversions, the sports. I'm amazed when I turn on uh, television news at the solemnity with which sports are reported. Mm -hmm. You would really think that these were uh, important events. Yes. Well, our time is about over. Uh, thank you all for listening. Do take to heart what Otto reported on with regard to the Pickle Committee and their work. If your church is not aware of this fact, they had better be. Not to be silent, but to protest against such illegal activities on the part of Congress. Your congressman should be aware that these things are happening and be made accountable for his part in such a thing, and your senator as well. Thank you for listening. God bless you all. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.